Well, Jeffrey Epstein was born to working-class parents in a small, rented, second-story apartment on Coney Island. In his 20s, he became a math and physics teacher at a steamed Manhattan prep school, and he leveraged those connections to land a job with a Wall Street firm, Bear Stearns, where he quickly rose within that firm. He became a managing partner, and he launched from there and formed his own financial services firm, actually a few of them. And by his early 40s, Jeffrey Epstein was living in one of the largest mansions in Manhattan's sort of famed Upper East Side, over 50,000 square feet of space. He owned two private islands in the Caribbean, over a 100,000-acre ranch in New Mexico, a palatial estate in Palm Beach, and multiple private jets to fly him anywhere he wanted to go. He quietly hobnobbed with the rich and the famous, politicians like Bill Clinton, Hollywood stars like Kevin Spacey, Chris Tucker. He was close to legendary lawyers like Alan Dershowitz, even British royalty, Prince Andrew, all of them he considered sort of part of his close inner circle. He had risen from, really from obscurity to become the celebrity tycoon, the very definition, we might say, of a self-made man. He was raised by Jewish parents, but he didn't need God. He trusted in himself. Epstein lived for himself. He even sought to further himself literally by seeding sort of his own DNA through these eugenic experiments that I don't fully quite yet understand, but it just seems, one example right there, there was no end to this man's dark ambition. And yet, tragically, we know that during much of that time, what Jeffrey Epstein was doing was also leveraging that wealth, leveraging his own influence, and his connections to operate an international sex trafficking ring of unspeakable evil. After multiple decades, it all caught up with him. In July of last year, he was arrested, assets were frozen, friends were fleeing, the law was really closing in on him, and as the weeks passed, it became clear that his sort of formally gilded life, that life was long gone. And so there, in a cramped, dank cell in Manhattan, haggard and alone, inmate 76318 took his life. It was one year ago this very month. And it's a tragic tale of one who genuinely seemed to believe that they could live life with impunity, right? Live it with immunity. And yet what we see with that life is that his sins eventually caught up with him. They exposed him, humiliated him, and utterly destroyed him. Friends, what might his life have to teach us? What might his life illustrate for us? How might it serve as a warning to us? Well, I want to invite you to turn one last time to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. The Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been in this study off and on now for a number of months. And Samuel, 1 Samuel, really records the story of how Israel, delivered from Egypt, this small tribal nation becomes an established monarchy. And Israel's first king is Saul. And while Saul certainly, as we've seen, he looks the part, right? He's got broad shoulders, the guy with the chiseled chin, right? He would have been on the front cover of, El, of every sort of 
You want a military magazine to recruit, to recruit folks like Saul's the guy on the cover. That's who you want to advertise for your military. He looks the part, but it's right what we've seen. He can't play the part. He can't play the part. And so God raises up another, David, after his own heart, who will eventually, we know, will take Saul's place. And yet, one of the things we've seen throughout the book is that Saul is not willing to quietly go away. He's not going to relinquish his rule. So for the past 15 chapters, we've seen Saul as he's desperately clung to power. Racked by fear and driven by ambition, Saul abandons God to live life his own way. Trusting in his own power, in his own wealth, in his own position, and in what's clear to be just his ruthless ambition. Saul charts his own path, right? He follows his own rules, and he does so all without any real reference to God. Friend, where does such a life ultimately lead? Well, I think we find the answer to that question in our final chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. Recall the Philistines, right? They'd gathered all their forces to march against Saul and to march against Israel back in chapter 29. But just as those armies face in the plains of Jezreel and they're about to do battle, the the scene turns and, and we cut away in the last two chapters to think of David. And we looked at him as the scene shifted and David has to courageously rescue with his men Uh, their families and the rest from raiding Amalekites. And so we finished chapter 30 with sort of David basking in his own military glory as he gives gifts, that kind of a king. And here we finally come back to the plains of Jezreel. And we've been building up to this point for weeks And it's as if the narrator has been reluctant to return to the scene. It's as if the narrator is dragging his literary feet because he loathes to tell the story of what's about to happen. So we pick up 1 Samuel 31, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. 
The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their gods and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabbath-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his three sons from the wall of Bashan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Well, friends, if you've come this morning looking for a, a kind of cheery, a kind of pick-me-up motivational message from the scriptures, I'm sorry. But here we are, right? This is 1 Samuel 31, and this is admittedly an exceedingly dark and sobering chapter, a chapter that is marked by death and by defeat and by despair. It's a chapter many preachers, I think, would just be tempted to skip because I know I was tempted to jump right into 2 Samuel and just leave this chapter alone. But we've got to know this is exactly where the Bible is honest with us and has something important to teach us because God loves us and he loves us enough to graciously warn us. For though Israel is routed, the camera is going to narrow its focus really one more time on the character of Saul, the man who began so well, who had so much hope and so much promise, and yet would abandon God for the ambitions of men. Here we see that the man who saw himself really as the only sovereign, living recklessly and living with impunity, this man comes to his ignominious end in this last chapter. And I think this final chapter of Saul's doomed life, as hard as it is, yet teaches us four, and I would suggest to you there are four gracious lessons, four gracious lessons we learn here in this final chapter of, uh, of chapter 31. And the first lesson is this. First lesson is this. Your sins will discover you. Your sins will discover you. Now, the chapter opens with a shockingly blunt and bloody synopsis right there in verse 1. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Right, the whole gruesome battle right, summarized there in one verse. And yet, in, in verse 2, Right, the camera's going to focus in, it's going to narrow in on a small group of soldiers making a final stand there on the slopes of Gilboa. Right, you've got dwindling ranks and this small band, they're beleaguered, they're exhausted, right, they're bereft of aid, many others have already fled. Their chests are heaving, their hearts are pounding, and despair sets in upon the small group as the Philistine hordes descend upon them and close in on them. And we read that they overtook Saul and struck down Jonathan. 
and we read some of the other names, but we just get caught up right there. We read they struck down Jonathan. The first casualty listed by name is none other than Jonathan. The man, right, who had made the covenant with David, who had pledged his loyalty to him, longed to reign alongside him. The one who in David's darkest moment, remember, risked his life at night to come to his aid and strengthen his hand in God. This Jonathan, right, nobody had loved David better. Nobody had been more faithful to David than Jonathan. Every time I read the chapter over this week, it was a long week reading this chapter every single day. And every time I came across that name, like I just stopped. My heart broke. It reads indeed like a Shakespearean tragedy. And we're tempted to think right there, you know, what a waste. What a worthless loss. Jonathan by his father's side. It's easy to become angry and to think that the loss of his life, his death was in vain or in some way that his death was pointless. But you know, as I reflected more this week on Jonathan's own life, Jonathan's death here in chapter 31 is in vain if we measure the good life by a long life. If we measure the good life by a comfortable life, by a secure life, even by a cushy life. If that's the measure of the Christian life, then perhaps, yes, Jonathan's life was in vain. But my Christian friend, the goal of the Christian life, it's never been the good life, as many would define it. It's never even a long life or certainly a cushy life. It is an honorable life, an honorable life. And unto the end, we see Jonathan, and he remained a true friend of David and a faithful son of Saul. Is that so tragic? As one observed, was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? Every one of us here We're born into different circumstances, and the Lord will give all of us different responsibilities, different callings. Jonathan's calling was right there, at the king's side, defending the king's people and awaiting his heavenly king's reward. And so Jonathan stood his ground, even as he dropped to the ground. And friends, perhaps we don't. Perhaps we don't stand our ground. Perhaps it's possible that the reason that we don't stand our ground, that the reason that we're so quick to duck and to escape some of the trials of this life for Christ is because we think so little of our king and so little of his heavenly rewards. But I think Jonathan's death grabs our attention And yet even as it does, the camera does still focus in and remains on Saul. His sons, tragically, yes, are slain, but Saul is left alongside, right, his armor bearer. They're scrambling up those rocky slopes in a a futile hope of escape. But the Philistines, we read what happened. The Philistines overtook him. They overtook him. 
in front. I don't want you to miss what's happening here. For years, how has Saul lived? He's lived as if there is no judgment to come, as if there's going to be no reckoning, as if God will never hold him to account for the life that he's lived. All the spears thrown at David's head, all of the broken promises. We think back to the butchery at Nob and the priest that he decimated or the necromancy there at Endor a few chapters back. He has lived as if there will be no reckoning for those things. Somehow, he believed he could escape the judgment of God, that it wouldn't come to him or that maybe he could elude God's judgment. He could slip through God's net in some way. But here we see Saul's sins finally catching up with him on the lonely slopes of Mount Gilboa. Right there, his sins, they finally discover him, they descend upon him, and his sins, really a life of sin at this point, it overtakes him. Because friends, that's exactly what sin does. We're getting a physical picture of what has happened to his life spiritually. Sin discovers you, and it exposes you, and will one day, like Saul here, it will overtake you. Listen, some of you may be here this morning under the mistaken illusion that you can sin as you please and still be good with God. Either because maybe you think God doesn't exist or he doesn't care or God's on vacation. I don't know what you may be thinking. But don't be deceived. Your sins will discover you. They will overtake you. And you won't be able to outrun them. You can't hide from them or dodge them or evade them. Your sins are coming for you. They will find you just as those archers in verse 3, just as they found Saul, so your sins will find you. And on that day, if you are found like Saul, trusting in self, then you will be exposed and there will be no hope of escape. Friends, that is the first sobering lesson of the text. Your sins will discover you. They will find you. But not only that, I think a second lesson we learn is that your sins will destroy you. Yes, they'll discover you, but secondly, your sins will destroy you. For when the archers find Saul, notice what happens. Well, they they badly wound him. We're not told what kind of a wound it is. Right? Extra-biblical sources suggest it could have been a stomach wound. We don't know. It doesn't finally matter. Fearing death at the hands of the Philistines, Saul is going to turn to his armor-bearer and say, listen, you finish the job. But his armor-bearer won't do it. Right? We read verse 4, what? That he greatly feared, or he feared greatly. You know, armor-bearers, sometimes we might, I tend to think of them like little bat boys or something. You know, they go and they carry some things and they hand the important things to the big important guys. Armor-bearers were first soldiers, you know, so a kid would never take a bat before a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. He'd run. Well, armor bearers, they were soldiers, so they fought first. Remember David, after Goliath, and after that marvelous victory, became Saul's armor bearer. Think of how this situation might have looked different had things been different between the two of them. No, he was first a soldier. I don't think he feared greatly because he was too scared to handle a sword. I think he feared greatly because he understood Saul was the Lord's anointed. And for the same reason that David would not raise his hand against Saul, though he had multiple opportunities, because he understood Saul 
was the Lord's anointed king, so his armor bearer won't lift his hand and his sword. He knew this was one command of his king that he could not obey because he served another king. And so tragically, what do we read? Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. He chose to kill himself, right? To die by his own hand. In a word, I think you can say Saul committed suicide. Now, I want to stop here for a moment, and I want us to think for a minute about what Saul's done. Because for some, as we think about suicide, some would say suicide is an honorable act. Maybe you can think of uh, Japanese, like samurai, who if they lost in battle or in some way dishonored their family, they would commit seppuku or, or harakiri, where they would go through a ceremonial practice of suicide. And that was to restore honor. Or others, right, such as the Roman Catholic Church has historically taught that suicide is the unpardonable sin. You know, one goes to the grave in suicide, and they cannot confess it. They cannot repent of that sin, hence the unpardonable sin. In our day, I think suicide has increasingly become an acceptable way of dealing with life's pain. In many ways, we've even come as a society, tragically, to glorify suicide. You can maybe think of Netflix's 13 Reasons Why, where even in that, in that, uh, that series, suicide becomes an ultimate sort of act of revenge, an acceptable form of vengeance against your enemies. But as biblical Christians, we have to recognize that as we think about suicide, it is neither honorable nor, though, is it the unpardonable sin. We, we, we should not assume in any way that. Nor is it to be glorified as an acceptable way to escape pain. We don't want to come to that conclusion either. You know, apart from Saul and his armor bearer, there are only four other explicit accounts of suicide in the scriptures. You've got Abimelech in Judges 9, Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17, Zimri in 1 Kings 16, and Judas, for example, Matthew 27 or Acts 1. And in none of those cases are their deaths spoken of in a noble way. None of them are presented as honorable. Certainly none are glorified. Instead, each is its own tragic outworking of sin. Now, for part of what the Bible teaches us is that our lives are not, in fact, our own. They belong to God. God alone is the author and sustainer of life. So God alone has all authority over life, including our own lives, which means our lives are, in fact, not ours to take. We cannot do with them as we please. And to insist otherwise is, in fact, our very rebellion against God. The insistence of sort of absolute personal autonomy, that act is actually an act of rebellion against God. And even here, in the context of 1 Samuel 31, Saul's suicide is actually presented as his own final act of rebellion against God. Now, I know in a group this large, some in the past will have contemplated suicide. Some of you may come wrestling with thoughts at present. And if that's you, I want to say this. 
You know, we live in a fallen world, right? East of Eden, sadly, there is much pain in this broken world. There is much despair. And sometimes we can't exactly see a way through. And we may come to the point where we start to believe that life isn't worth living. But if that's you, what I want to say to you is that God's perspective on your life is very different. It's very different. Your life is precious to him. Your life is dear to him. Your life is in fact so precious and so dear to him that he sent his son for you. To die even for you. That is indeed how precious, even in the midst of something that may seem insurmountable, that your life is that precious to God. So precious, in fact, that he forbids you to take it. Because all murder is wrong. Even self-murder. That too is wrong. You know, suicide, part of what it does is it models the choice to run away. The choice to escape is, in fact, a legitimate way to deal with life's problems. It suggests that violence is a legitimate response to pain. And we might be tempted to think that life were better if we were gone, but the reality is no one will be helped by your suicide. No one will be relieved. Why questions will haunt those you leave behind. Suicide sets off an avalanche of pain. And it never lessens the pain. It only magnifies that pain. So if you're struggling this morning, talk to a friend. Get some help. Talk to a pastor. Don't walk alone. Don't try to deal with it alone. And never for a moment believe the lie, a lie that comes straight from the pit of hell, the lie that this life is better off without your life. Never believe that lie. That's a lie Satan would have you believe. But God wants you to understand that your life is desperately precious to him and to so many who are here. I had a, a basketball teammate in junior high who took his life. And that's what I wish I could say to him. Sadly, Saul's suicide is symbolic. For so long, Saul has relied upon his weapons for deliverance. How many times have we seen Saul with that infamous spear? But now his weapon here is only useful, not for deliverance, but for his own destruction. Saul is going to be slain by the very weapon he trusted to save him. And it's symbolic in another way because to die by your armor bearer, as Saul desires to die, that's actually, in fact, how the first royal pretender in Scripture died. If we look back at Abimelech, that's exactly how he died in Judges 9. And I think thus, even in that request, Saul is exposing himself as a counterfeit king. But, you know, even, even his death is symbolic in another way. Because notice the Philistines... They didn't finally remove Saul from his throne. David 
did not finally remove Saul from his throne. In fact, again, he refused to do so multiple occasions. Saul, he did this to himself. It's really a picture of his life. For all along the way, Saul has precipitated his own downfall through his own faithlessness and through his own disobedience. You see, Saul's problem was never Goliath. Saul's problem was never the Philistines. Saul's problem was never David. Saul's problem was always Saul. Always him. He refused to trust God. At every turn, he would not remain faithful, but trust rather in himself. And when things didn't go away, what did Saul do? Well, Saul loved to blame others. He never would take true responsibility for his sin. You see, Saul was ever the victim. And here's the problem. When you play that card, when you see yourself as so many do today, maybe you do as well. When you fundamentally see yourself as a victim and play that card, and when you convince yourself that the most fundamental evil is what others have done toward you and not your own willful rebellion against God, when you convince yourself of that, that the fundamental evil is what others have done to you, what has happened to you, you can no longer repent because you can no longer see your sin first as an offense against God. You blind yourself to your sins because the problem is always someone else's first and it's never yours. And yet, what do we see but all along, all through Saul's reign, No hand had injured him but his own. As he lived, so he died, his own undoer and his own murderer. Friends, notice what we don't find Saul doing. In his last moments, we don't find him desperately crying out to God pleading for mercy and grace. It seems in Saul's life there are no more prayers to be uttered. Right, That quiver has long since been empty. No prayers, no pleas, just silence as he resigns himself to his own God-forsaken fate. Because friends, that is what sin does. It destroys. And we read that summary, that haunting summary in verse 6. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men. I assume those are his crack troops, like the 3,000 he's always chasing with David. All those guys on the same day together. Oh gosh, that verse hits like a sledgehammer when we read it. Because in that moment, all of Israel's might was broken. Her leadership lay slain. Her land is now occupied. And as we'll see, her religion is disgraced. That is what sin has destroyed. And that's what it does. It's why we shouldn't play fast and loose with sin. It's why we don't flirt with it. It's why we don't coddle it. It's why we don't minimize it, recategorize it, reclassify it, whatever you want to say. We don't play those games when it comes to sin because this is its end. The wages of sin is death. Do you see it right here? It is death. 
every single time. Now, at this point, like, we've had enough. We just want this chapter to end. You've got fields flooded with the, with the blood of the fallen here on Mount Gilboa, and we just want the story over. And yet, sadly, the story just doesn't end. The story keeps going. Because not only will sins discover you, and not only will your sins destroy you, not to mention those around you. We haven't even discussed that. But thirdly, your sins also, third lesson, your sins will disgrace you. Your sins will disgrace you. Notice what happens to Saul in verse 8. We read the next day that the the Philistines come, and what do they do? But they, they strip the corpses to collect their prizes. That's what they do on the following day. And who do they find but Saul and his three sons? And the impression you get is they perhaps didn't expect to find them out there in the field of battle. They didn't seem to know that Saul and his royal house were dead. I think it speaks to the the chaos and the magnitude of the battle, the, the sheer number of the bodies that had fallen, that somehow Saul and his royal house had been missed. And what do they do? They cut off his head and they strip him of his armor. Saul's already dead, right? The battle is long since over. The Philistines won, and yet they still mutilate his body nonetheless, and then they impale it on the wall of Bethshan. Part, again, of what we are seeing right here are the tragic consequences of a life of sin. It just continues. It's how our sins expose us and humiliate us and ultimately, again, disgrace us. It could be in this life. You know, I opened with the story of the disgraced financier, Jeffrey Epstein. It could be in this life. It could be in the next life, as it so obviously was here, even for Saul. And part of the disgrace is even witnessed in in how they strip him. Notice the What's happening right there is the final divestment of Saul with his royal robes, right? They're going to strip him of that, strip him, notice, of his armor. So ironic how Saul had trusted in the weapons of this world, and look where the weapons of this world got him. The reality is Saul didn't need that armor any more than David needed it when he fought Goliath. Remember, Saul tried to give it to David, and David said, listen, I don't need this armor. The Lord is my armor. The Lord is my protector. That is what Saul never seemed to understand. He trusted in the weapons of men, and this is where it got him. A decapitated king alongside his dead sons, a decimated army, and a people retreating in defeat. That's where it led. Such was the folly of Saul's idolatry. But it wasn't just notice Saul's idolatry. This was also the people's idolatry. How did we get to chapter 31? Well, remember the Israelites. Back in chapter 4, when they faced Philistine defeat, what did they do? They asked for a king like the nations. So who did God give them? Saul, whose name means asked for, a king like the nations. You see, Israel, Israel thought that their solution to the Philistine problem was a political one. They went after a political solution. They didn't need God, they just needed a new form of government and that would solve their problems. And look where it got Israel. Such was the folly of Israel's own idolatry. 
But friends, are we ever at the risk of maybe making the same mistake? Looking for political solutions to spiritual problems? How often do we look to politicians to tackle every issue and to solve our country's greatest needs? Right? We can talk about COVID. We can talk about race. We can talk about income inequality. And at the end of the day, so many point their finger at politicians and say, you're the problem. Or if we just hire this guy or elect this guy, he or she will be our savior and will deliver us. The Bible, it's never that simple. Not when you're dealing with sinful human hearts. We look to government to do what government was never expected or intended to do and what it cannot control. Israel looked to a new government, and they thought, what an ingenious invention, kingship. God called it idolatry. My friend, what are you trusting in? You know, we just had the two major party political conventions the last two weeks. We had them, but to be clear, neither of those party platforms, neither of those parties represent the solution to our nation's most desperate problems. That's not to say all parties are equal. They certainly are not. That's not to say Christians shouldn't care about the differences. There are huge differences and you should care about them. It's not to say your vote doesn't matter because your vote certainly does matter. I hope you do vote. It's not to say any of those things, but it is to say that the moment we cling to one party or one candidate and look to that party or candidate as our savior and talk about this election and this candidate as God's man, The moment we speak about the November elections as if the future of the church somehow now hangs in the balance for the first time in history is the moment that we too have given ourselves over to our own idolatry. And God has a way of crushing our most cherished idols. He did it with Dagon, remember back in chapter five? And he's done it right here. Saul slain on Mount Gilboa. But I think what's most tragic of all, it's not just the disgrace that's come upon Saul as he is exposed and impaled upon that wall. It's the disgrace that comes, did you notice? Upon God himself. Verse nine, after Saul is decapitated and stripped, likely stripped naked, we read that they sent the Philistines messengers throughout the land, throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the what? to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. You catch that? They're carrying the good news, what we refer to as the gospel, right? There it is. They're carrying the gospel, the gospel which is supposed to be that Yahweh saves, that Yahweh delivers, that Yahweh alone is the only sovereign, good, and wise God. Well, notice this is the anti-gospel that Yahweh doesn't save, that he can't be trusted, that if you are in him, you will be defeated, that Yahweh is nothing more than a second-rate, petty tribal deity. That is the gospel of the Philistines. That is the gospel being celebrated. Now, let's try to ignore for a moment that the Philistines notice, notice they have to carry this news back to the house of their idols. So just reflect on that. Far from controlling the events of history, the gods of Philistia seem to be ignorant of what happened on the battlefield. They have to be informed of the fact that the Philistines won. 
And friend, it should go without saying that if your God is so ignorant of what's happening in the world that you have to inform him, he is probably not a God worth worshiping. But besides that point, what we're meant to see is that even worse than Israel's defeat, even worse than Saul's death, is Yahweh's disgrace. God's disgrace. For I think here is the real tragedy of sin. It's not just how it discovers us. It's not just how it destroys us, even disgraces us. It's finally witnessed in the disgrace and the dishonor it brings upon God himself. I wonder if that's ever how you think about sin. If you're a Christian here this morning, do you ever think about sin in that way, fundamentally as the disgrace that it brings upon God? Do you ever think about how sin falsely advertises to the world who and what God is like? Think about how it lies about God every single time you sin. How your sins, in fact, cry out that God is, in fact, not good. That he can't, in fact, be trusted. That his word isn't sufficient. That the promises of heaven aren't worth it. That one can't finally be satisfied in him, and one can't finally delight in him and enjoy him because there must be something out there better than him, namely sin. That's what your sin cries out about God every time you give in and you partake. Every sin falsely again advertising, lying about God, and it does way more damage than any billboard an atheist can put up. Which is why we always ought to be more concerned about God's honor than our own honor. Our own honor. You know, Esther Burr was the, the daughter of Jonathan Edwards. And tragically, she lost her husband, who was a Presbyterian pastor, co-founder of Princeton University. He died, and he left Esther, his wife, alone with a large brood, small children. And in her anguish and in her grief, she was tempted to fault God, to blame God, Right? She was becoming bitter toward God, and yet she would write to her parents, and she would write this. She would say to her parents, oh, I am afraid that I shall conduct myself so as to bring dishonor on my God and the religion that I profess. But no, rather let me die this moment than be left to bring dishonor on God's holy name. Friends, I think sadly, those sentiments of Esther's are largely lost on us. We don't really have categories for that so much. You know, this past week, what did we witness but the downfall of Jerry Falwell Jr., president of Liberty University, you know, where a series of revelations this past week have revealed gross moral and sexual misconduct that has been happening for, for years, in fact, to decades and instead of lamenting the dishonor that would come upon that institution and upon the name of Christ for what has happened, he lawyers up and protects his own name. Friends, the name that we must be concerned with first is God's name and never our own. It's always where it begins. And where is God's name, friends? Where is his reputation his honor, where is that on display? 
Where should we fight as a congregation to preserve that honor? Well, it's in the one institution God left through Christ to bear witness to his name. And friends, that is the local church. That's where his name is most meant to be honored. It is where his corporate witness to the world is meant to be seen and witnessed. God's honor ought to be displayed through our faithful witness as a body. And that, friends, let that be our consuming passion. Let that be our concern, that we display in holiness that wonderful witness to the gospel, that he is good, and all the things that God promises he is and will reveal himself to be and has already done so. Friends, that's why we strive for holiness as a congregation. That's why we help one another fight our own sins. Should we always be encouraging one another? Yes, Should we sometimes be rebuking one another in our sins? Well, sadly, yes, we will have to do that too. And when necessary, must we exercise discipline over members who refuse to repent and turn from sin? Yes, for the honor of God's name, we absolutely do that. And out of love for them as well, lest they walk the same path as Saul. The honor of UBC is not what compels us. It's the honor of God that compels us. You know, as we come to the end of this book, it hasn't been pretty. It just gets darker as we keep going. You got to picture the scene here at the closing. The sun is setting. The landscape is turning to black. The headless body of Saul and his lifeless sons, deserted by all, are impaled upon a wall. And in the background, all that is heard are the distant shouts of the Philistine victory, and the howling of jackals. That's where we're left. The passage really does bring us to the end of ourselves. You know, enough is enough, and at this point we feel it. The scene closes in a cemetery, and once again closes under a tamarisk tree, which, if that is vaguely familiar, it's fitting, because remember it was under a tamarisk tree, with Saul, infamous spear in hand, there in chapter 22 where his infamous colors would be revealed, his sinful ways would be revealed as he goes to slaughter the priest at Nob. It's a sadly tragic way to see Saul come to his final end. And this is where human rule through human means, it's where it leads. A burned, disfigured body buried in the ground. It's not a pretty picture. But it's right here. I think right here when we feel the weight and the enormity of sin's consequences, the way it discovers and it destroys and it disgraces, that we're actually meant to look to another king and to look to another war, to another battle on another mountain, where another king would apparently be defeated by his enemies where another king as well would be handed over to the nations in order to be abused. And they too would strip this king and they would mock him and they would deride him and they would torture his body and they as well would impale it to a block of wood. And in the same way that the residents of Jabbath Gilead would come at night and take those bodies down, so we read another who loved Jesus, would come at night and take his body down 
and see that it was given a new tomb and a new burial. Only this king's flesh, unlike Saul's, it wasn't burned, it wasn't reduced to ash, and it did not rot, but what? It was raised. It was raised to newness of life. Because this king, Jesus, whom we're speaking of, he is the true king that Saul could never be. Saul brings us to despair and points us to that one, the only king in whom we can trust. Not some pretender, but God's true deliverer. He's the one we look to. Because this king didn't die for his own sins. He had no sins for which to die. Rather, he died for the sins of all of those who would turn and trust in him. Jesus was the true promised king that Saul and even David, we're going to see in 2 Samuel, not yet, maybe sometime in the future, that David couldn't be. For all those who abandon God, for all those like Saul who live for their own glory, chapter 31 is what awaits. And it's a terrifying picture. Your sins will discover you, they will destroy you, and they will disgrace you. But this closing picture and lesson is that in Christ, your sins have been defeated. Christ has defeated your sins. He's done that for you. What you cannot do, Christ has done, defeated sin for you. Which means for all those who look to this Christ, who look to him as the true king, who flee to him for grace, who trust that while he was impaled upon that block of wood, he bore forever your sins. And when he was raised in newness of life, you too can be raised in him. This king can be your everlasting king, a king who will not disappoint. He delivers and he can deliver you. Friend, is this Jesus your king? You need him to be your king. Amen. Let's pray.